0: It is a treat to be with you. Thank you so much for uh, allowing me to uh, preach God's Word. I say thank you, but I'm assuming you didn't vote on it or anything like that. But still, I appreciate that um, you've given me this this privilege, and I do count it as a holy thing, as a sacred trust to uh, declare the oracles of God and uh, when John Marco asked me to preach in August, uh, if I would be willing to preach in October, I said, sure, put me down for whatever, I mean, October's like way far away, and sure enough, October is here. And I, I looked forward to the path. Look, looked at the text, and I was like, well, you know, it's not like that hard of a passage, there's not a lot of complicated theology or anything going on here. Um. And there are some interesting textual details, some words which don't really occur elsewhere that probably won't get to. But I'll tell you what, the more that I've studied this passage, I am just so convinced that the world needs to hear these six verses, that the church needs to hear these six verses. So I'm excited about what God's going to do with our time together let's begin with a little bit of a a competition see who's the fastest ready how far away is the moon if you know it shout out the answer it's far how far how far 200,000 well that's pretty close can anybody be more precise than that? You can use whatever resources you need to use. <laughs> anybody, any cell phone slingers out there that are able to find that information? Two hundred, there you go, very good. Not even a cell phone on a watch, very good, I like it. This, this actual question came up a while ago at our dining room table and we were talking about well, the distance of the moon to the earth, and I didn't know, and so we did what any reasonable person would do in that situation, and we just asked, Alexa, how far away is the moon from the earth? We live in an age of uh, unprecedented access to information, don't we? I mean, just think about it, terabytes of information at our fingertips. And yet, study after study has shown that over the past 10, 20 years, as the the access to information has just skyrocketed, it's come at a price. As, As that access to information has increased, so have things like loneliness, sadness, division, anger. Through the wonders of YouTube, anyone can find out how to bake spare ribs, uh, change a tire, fix a washing machine. We can gain proficiency in any number of tasks, but proficiency in life is different. It really is a shame that we can so effortlessly find the nearest Home Depot. But it's so hard to find joy in meaningful relationships. The idea of acquiring facility in living well is what the book of Proverbs calls wisdom. And it challenges us. you got to get wisdom. Proverbs 3, 5 to 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will... A little bit of translation competition going on here. (laughs) Make your path straight, something like that. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be health to your bones and nourishment to your flesh. Have you ever had a point in your life where you've realized you don't have wisdom? That you've come up against a wall and and there's no going any further. And you've realized that the problem is not an effort, it's not a matter of the will. Like, you want it bad. Nor is it a function of energy. Or effort. But you just have, you have to be honest and say before God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to live. It's a humbling experience. Where you're at, at a job and somebody gives you a task and you don't know what to do. And you, you, you fuddle around with the computer program or whatever. And you just say, I can't figure this out. And you just go to somebody who knows. And you say, hey listen, I don't know how to work this program Could you you point me in the right direction, a YouTube video or some person that I could watch, and now I know how to use a program. But it's harder to come to that point when it's, you just got to come to God and say, I just don't know how to live. And I'm trying really hard, and it's not working. What do you do when you realize you lack wisdom? James tells us. Chapter 1, verse 5, you ask God. And God loves to give. He's not stingy. But I've noticed that it's rare that God just kind of, creation ex nihilo, zaps wisdom inside an individual. I mean, there's Solomon and there are cases like that. But James uh, tells us that God gives this wisdom... Through trials only if you respond properly. James also tells us that God gives wisdom through the gift of his word, this word, this, this book is the truth. And yet James's concern is not so much that this book is inerrant and infallible and inspired as true as that is, um, but his point is to say, that only matters and affects you if you read it the right way. Wisdom does not come just through the process of osmosis or just reading it. You can read it a whole bunch and it's not going to do anything. It must be read with an obedient spirit. And yet even then, the idea of like taking a book and putting it right here or when I say reading it, we we need to be careful that we're not anachronistic. That we don't, Imagine people in the first century waking up early in the morning, pouring themselves a a cup of coffee, sitting down in a leather recliner, and opening up their Bible for their daily devotions. We're blessed to be able to do things like that, but in a first century context, you got the Word of God at the meeting. Strangely, what, what James refers to as the synagogue, some interesting scholarship that I'm Exercising all my self control to not go into right now. So uh, they're meeting in the synagogue with the, with the reading of the word. This reinforces the importance of the one who is tasked with teaching the word. Which brings us up to James chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers. My brothers, knowing that we will receive a greater judgment. The wisdom that God gives comes through the word, and and teachers are a vital part of that process. And that's a holy responsibility. So be careful. Don't screw it up. Because you screw it up, God's watching. And you're affecting a lot of people. Now, James moves on there and starts talking about the tongue. Anybody who preaches a sermon on the tongue is likely going to give a powerful message, is likely going to produce a lot of conviction. If you ever hear a message about the tongue, the chances are you've heard one of these before, right? And you think, shouldn't have said that. I probably need to go apologize to her and him and that whole group of people there. We all stumble when it comes to our tongue. But especially teachers. Because that's like our medium. That's what we do. That's our tool. And yet James chapter 3, this, the unit on the tongue, tells us that the, the tongue is small and can have great effects. The tongue is the cause. And it can like set whole fire, uh, forests on fire. And yet the tongue also is the effect which has its own cause. He puts it this way. Um, he puts it this way. Nope. Where did that go? Anyway, I'll just read it. Uh, it's in... Um, <laughs> I bring all these notes like I'm accurately going to use them. But, okay, uh, James 3 uh, we will start... Um, this, this is how he... He talks about it. He says, does, well, just look up in verse, um, let's turn to my actual Bible here, Uh, verse nine, in it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. And then he talks about how does fresh water and salt water, or bitter water, come from the same source. The Lord Jesus put it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Words are powerful, but they come from somewhere. They come from a kind of wisdom that you have. And that brings us to James 3, 13 to 18. Verse 13 is what I've labeled as the thesis. Verses 14 to 16 are about false wisdom. And 17 to 18 are about true wisdom. A pretty simple outline. The basic idea is that wisdom is tested by meekness. So keep this... Uh, general outline in your mind as I read our passage. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false or, or lie to the truth, This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Alright, let's begin in verse 13 uh, with what I've called the thesis. Just like faith shows its reality, this is James chapter 2, which I'm uh, assuming you, you, you can remember, James chapter 2, faith shows its reality through works. And here we find that same word, works. Wisdom, real wisdom, shows its reality through works. And specifically, the works which are what he calls the, the meekness of wisdom. We should probably understand this expression to mean something like the meekness that comes from Wisdom. Uh, the idea is that real wisdom will necessarily produce meekness, so if anybody claims that they're wise, doesn't, have, doesn't pass the litmus test of weakness, you can tell it 's a sham. Now the expression, "the meekness of wisdom," would have been absurd to those living in Greco-Roman times, at least to the broader Greco-Roman society. We've got a couple famous Greek statues up here when i say greek culture i wonder what comes to your mind maybe it's the yogurt Uh, (laughs) but if you're more scholastically minded than that maybe it's a famous uh, philosopher like plato or aristotle or maybe it's this other guy over here do you know who that is it's not it's not john marco This is, uh, I said that joke in the first one, and then you were here, and I was like, well, I've got to say it if he's actually present in the room. This is the mighty Hercules. Um, Now, uh, the, the Greek people valued wisdom, but it was wisdom and strength. The kind of people who would tear apart their enemies. These are the Marvel superheroes of the ancient age. Who were valued, and in a lot of ways, mirror our society very well. And yet, James talks about the meekness of wisdom. Now, for a lot of James's audience, meeting in the synagogue or something like that, would have been familiar with the Old Testament, and they would have remembered that people like Moses. The quintessential wise man had the reputation of being the meekest man on the earth. James is fully in line with this tradition. There are a bunch of pretenders, but we'll know the real deal with the test of meekness. Let me also suggest to you that meekness, the kind of meekness that James has in mind, particularly has to do with his words. The previous section challenges us about the power of words and then just he's placed the 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 discussion of wisdom and meekness i'm sorry wisdom and the tongue back to back they go together it's particularly appropriate for those who are teachers who is the wise man among you of course we all want to be wise when we're thinking about leaders we really want them to be wise We don't need to draw a hard line between is this passage about teachers or is it about everybody else? Because the idea of a teacher is to be a leader. He's standing in the front of the line saying, hey everybody, we're going here. James's point is that leaders should be going places you want to go. If they're truly wise, then they'll take you to meekness. All of this seems particularly relevant to me as uh, when, I, when I think about your situation from what I know of it, and thinking about pastoral leadership, those who are teaching. As with any job applicant, there's got to be a resume. Everybody's got a resume. You've got to submit one of those. But James's point is that the real resume is in the teacher's words. Just let him keep talking. Does he burn down a forest? That's not the kind of wisdom you want. Is he full of bitterness, harshness? Is he bombastic? The thing that you're really looking for to stand out in his resume is meekness. Aha, that's how you know he's got the wisdom from above is when you found a humble man. That's somebody worth following. James moves on from verse 13, his thesis, to then support it by looking at its opposite. False wisdom is found in verses 14 to 16. And uh, we'll get these guys off the screen for us. And and we'll get to uh, false wisdom and we can break this up into three sections. The description... Then we have uh, the source, and then the effects. This expression, false wisdom, is just my shorthand for what I think James is doing. Uh, James is a bit more poetic than me, Uh, and he says, This kind of wisdom, this alternative, boasts and lies against the truth. Uh, The Greek construction here likely means something like, Stop boasting and lying against the truth. Will you just sit down? James describes this false witness as having bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And again, all of this seems particularly relevant for teachers and leaders, though it's by no means exclusive of them. Exclusively about them. The Greek word for jealousy here is zealos. And as as you hear that word zealos, you can hear the word zeal in it. Uh, The word word zeal is important to understand because it's actually neutral. It, it It can be good or it can be bad. And that's worth thinking about a little bit. James is not against just plain old zeal. In fact, we need to have a lot of zeal. Ambition. A go-get-em attitude. This, this resonates with us as it's a particularly American virtue. We value people who can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. The people, uh, the Steve Jobs in the world who can start a business like in, in a garage and then grow it to be a multi-billion dollar company and we think, now that's Incredible. Now, it's commonplace for people in my profession, at least or in my circles, to kind of poo-poo that attitude, but I think we need it. I think it's godly to be full of ambition, And, and the nature of the church demands, the nature of what we're trying to do demands ambition. My wife and I are new to the area, our family is, and so we have to do this horrible thing. It's called church shopping. It is a great evil under the sun with which God has afflicted the sons of men. I mean, it's a necessary evil, but you have to do it, right? So let's imagine we found this place and we really like it, and and so we sit down with the leadership and we say, explain to us your vision. What what do you see as the future of this church and and what's happening in Grand Rapids? And and the, the team of elders says to my wife and me well we like potlucks i don't know keep on keeping on maintain the status quo that's a bad answer we want people who are excited about the things of god Okay, God's at work in the world. We want to get on board and, and work and serve him faithfully. The, the Bible commends this. The Lord Jesus, it was said about him, quoting from the Psalms, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Romans 12, 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Especially necessary of leaders. However, this eagerness can have a dark side. And that's what James warns against in 3.14. False wisdom, the deceptive kind, is full of bitter zeal, bitter jealousy. The word bitter actually occurs in 3.11, just a few verses earlier. Uh, Most translations have salt, like in the ESV, as the alternative to fresh water, but it's literally, it's the same word, it's bitter water. Uh, James has in mind the kind of zeal that is repulsive. You take a drink and it's just, you spit it out, it's unusable. It's the bad kind. He also describes this false wisdom as having selfish ambition. The word doesn't occur very often in the New Testament. It's kind of hard to pin down with accuracy. Uh, Plato, no, I'm sorry, Aristotle uses it in reference to partisan and greedy politicians who push forward their own agenda. It also occurs in the famous Philippians 2. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, consider others as more important as yourself. These two go hand in hand. James has in mind the kind of person who has an inflated view of how their idea is the best idea. They want to get stuff done, but it's either their way or the highway. This is selfish ambition. It's got to be done my way. Watch out for those sorts of people. Watch out for that sort of thinking. Watch out for the, sorts of, the, the sort of thinking that says... There's only one way to move forward, to resolve this conflict, to overcome this obstacle, and God has revealed it to me alone. And boy, is it a good thing you got me on your side. And it just so happens I'm going to play an integral part in this solution. Now, maybe as I'm talking about this characteristic, somebody comes to your mind, maybe you come to your mind, (laughs) and you think about it, I've done that before. It's easy to dismiss this critique as being insignificant, leads us to wonder how big of a deal is this anyway, right? James says it's a big deal, in fact, let me tell you where it comes from. It is not from above. It does not come down from above. For those who are familiar with James chapter 1, this should ring a few bells. Remember, we, we, we looked, we, I alluded to James 1, 5 earlier. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. Then in verse 17, we have the very famous verse. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. The wisdom that comes down from above is not like this. In other words, the wisdom that that James describes in verses um, 14 through 16 is not the answer to the prayer request of James chapter 1. If you're asking God for wisdom, and and these are your ideas, it's not coming from God. Not only is it not from God, it is is upon the earth, and it is soulish, is literally the Greek here, which is kind of a weird word. It's always hard to translate. Uh, Unspiritual might get at the idea. Um, It's not that James is against the soul. He talks about saving the soul a couple times in this letter, but it means in contrast to the spiritual, something like base, or even fleshly might strangely get at the idea. In any case, it's just a pit stop in the trajectory. He keeps going. Not from above. It's earthly. It's soulish. And worse than that, it's demonic. James has warned us in 3.6 that the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. Here he gives us an example of what hellish speech looks like, sounds like. It's important that we keep this, the importance of this issue in our minds. It just seems like churches, and people in general, it's just human nature, but uh, so often Churches seem to be attracted to bombastic, narcissistic preachers who have a lot of good ideas and are charismatic, who are, whose sermons are full of how everybody else is wrong. James says that's false wisdom. No, that's demonic. Run away. That, it, he explains where it comes from and also where it's going. He says it'll result in things falling apart and every evil or vile practice. Pause for just a moment and think about why is this the case? Why is it that we so often give in to this idea of false wisdom? One reason maybe because people like this are often good at getting stuff done. The pushy pastor will make sure that the gym gets built on time and under budget numbers are up, and tithes are in, and so on. But God is more concerned about our character than the end product. In fact, even that sentence kind of gives into the, this, this false way of thinking. If, if this church is a factory, what comes, what is, it that is, what is it that we're trying to output at the end of the assembly line? Is it more people? Is it a bigger facility? Or is it character? If the goal is character, then the person who's in charge has got to be a a man of character. Well, after providing the scathing rebuke of demonic wisdom, James turns to true wisdom. He gives us its source and description in verse 17, and then its effects in verse 18. He describes it with uh, seven, he says it is from above. That's its uh, source. And then very quickly, it's, well, very quickly, it's its uh, source. And then he gives us a sevenfold description. Let's go through those. The first is pure. In fact, James lays it on thick. It is, first of all, pure, that's its primary characteristic. Many commentators take pure here as like, this is the fountainhead of all the other things that come. Kind of like saying, uh, in contrast to the false wisdom, the pure wisdom, the real wisdom, the true wisdom, looks like this. And then, he, and then he describes it. God's wisdom is holy. And so as we're thinking in any context about how to get from point A to point B, there will be temptations to cut corners in our ethics. To make compromises. God's wisdom says no. We won't do that. We can do a whole bunch of things. But we must be pure. And follow his word. Next. True wisdom is peaceful. Now, this word just runs through our text. And it will come up again in verse 18. In, in making peace. True wisdom is peaceful. Peaceful. This doesn't mean that true wisdom is afraid of conflict. In fact, as I think back to, uh, in my life, uh, uh, the people that I admire the most as the wisest men that God has put in my path, I account them to be the wisest people that I know because I know about them in conflict. And they've stepped in when there was conflict and their advice was not, Just ignore it. Let it go. It'll all blow over. True wisdom knows how to deal with conflict. Being peaceable doesn't mean you run away from conflict, but neither does it mean that you just make problems when there are none. A person with God's wisdom will come into a room with conflict and tempers will not flare. It will be understanding. It will calm things down while still getting to the root of the problem. It seems hard to do, doesn't it? That's why, it's why you need wisdom. That's why it's got to come from God. Third, true wisdom is gentle. The Greek word here for gentle um, could also be translated as yielding or tolerant. It's like, as opposed to that like, rock-like um, stubbornness. It's flexible. It's quick to defer to the opinions and convictions of other people. It's soft in that sense. In my line of work, this value, this virtue is often unappreciated. What's important is that you got your ideas and you can defend them at all costs. God's wisdom isn't like that. Now, don't get me wrong. God's wisdom, gentle wisdom, is not against debate. Um, It's willing to hear both sides of the story. Let's go back and forth, and you explain your reasons for thinking things, and I'll explain my reasons for thinking things, and we'll go back and forth. However, it does not insist when... You're at the end of the road that um, your way must be done. Quick to grant the validity of other people's point. This goes hand in hand with the fourth description. True wisdom is open to reason or compliant. Uh, Douglas Moon, his excellent commentary on James, says, quote, the word means literally, easily persuaded. What is meant is not a weak, credulous gullibility, but a willing deference to others when unalterable theological or moral principles are not involved, quote. After all, its main concern is purity. These are the sorts of people who are happy to work with others who have different ideas. Are you happy to work with others who have different ideas? And you know, you're not doing things your way, but it's what somebody else thought was a better idea. Maybe you're at the end of the day, you weren't convinced, but you know what? The The decision wasn't yours to make, and so you're content with that. There are people who have hobby horse issues, particularly like church leaders. And every chance they get, they talk about some issue that is, divided genuine Christians for millennia. But don't worry, they've got it all figured out, and they're going to tell you in this half an hour sermon. (sighs) Are we comfortable working with people who who are different from us even doctrinally? Now, There's a balance here. Of course, we're, first of all, pure, and so if things are clearly revealed in the will of God and the Word of God, we must remain true to that. But if it's a genuine area of disagreement, then we should not be so proud as to insist that our way must be the only way. Fifth, it is full of mercy and good fruit. James has already told us that mercy triumphs over judgment. Don't want to be judged. Must show mercy. Sixth, true wisdom is impartial. It, it's, it's not divided, as in it doesn't uh, um, callously or arbitrarily divide people up. It's also not divided in the sense that it's, it's not hypocritical, which would then um, bleed over into the seventh description. It is sincere. I've noticed, maybe you have as well, that when somebody who's truly wise in this way, who's, who's um, gentle and pure, that they don't have anything to hide because they don't have a secret agenda. And so they can just put their cards out on the table, speak the truth. One last verse. Hey, when are we supposed to be done? Forty-five? that may or may not happen okay <laughs> verse 18 concludes where we are wrapping up here okay verse 18 describes the effects the fruit of righteousness or the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by or for interesting stuff going on in the Greek but we only have four minutes so I can't talk about it I can talk about it later uh, by those who, who make peace you're going to have to trust me that, I, that the best reading is by although I'm only 51% convinced of that We're going to go with by. By those who make peace. Okay. The fruit of righteousness, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peace is, again, is an important word in the empire of Rome. There's this thing called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And the idea is you've got all these countries in the ancient world and they're fighting each other. And so Rome comes in and says, there will be peace. That's a Lord of the Rings reference. There will be peace, and they and the way we get this peace is by subjugating everyone, and we'll be in charge. That is not sowing peace in peace. The wise will make peace in peace. Maybe we won't think about it in terms of like the Roman Empire. Um, I have three children, ages. 11, 9, and 7, and they, like many 11, 9, and 7-year-olds, feel things deeply in our passionate souls. <laughs> there's a lot of conflict. I had no idea how much conflict there would be when I first started being a parent. And so as, as I was thinking through those things, just talk about the last time there's been a conflict, and it was just last night. So we're playing this game called Pigmania. Do you know Pigmania? It's a really old-fashioned type game. It's a weird, weird game. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, there are like these, these pig statues, pig figurines, and you shake them up in a cup, and you dump, it sounds kind of like satanic or something, but it's not. It's just a, it's, 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 a, it's a very simple game. And you, you shake them up in a cup, and you dump them out, and depending on the position of the pigs, you get certain points, right? So we're playing this game, and just, the incredible passion no that not wasn't on the floor wasn't on the ground it was a huffer i get five points no you don't you get one point i saw it you shook the table you shouldn't have shook the table okay there's conflict the temptation in my flesh is to come in and say you know what the pigs are going in the trash You all get no points, you equally lose, and I win. There. Peace. I have resolved the conflict. That's my natural tendency. It's my soulish tendency. James would go far as to say it's my demonic tendency. This wisdom doesn't come from God. (laughs) Those who want the harvest of righteousness know how to sow peace in peace, to kindly listen and model the right behavior. Because after all, my goal as a parent, our goal in the church, wherever we are, whatever sphere in which we are ministering, is to be concerned about people's character, and not who wins pygmania. mania. Our, our goal is to point people to the one who said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your soul."